Thank you very much, Guy, for agreeing to speak to me about the basics, the basic principles of alchemy before we go into a, a more detailed evaluation of the alchemical symbolism of the Green Knight narrative within the Arthurian cycle. Um, and what I'd really be grateful for is a very rudimentary outline of the essential, the basic principles of alchemy. Um, well, the principles, principles is the word, because our starting point is what we call the tria prima, the three prime things, the three principles. And the three principles are to do with um, manifestation within creation. For there is nothing that can be here as we are now that does not have each of the three principles inherent. And these principles are expressed in our chemical terminology as sulfur, mercury and salt. And they can be equated with spirit, soul, and body. For without a soul, we have no um, differentiating identity. We are not a thing unto ourselves. And without a spirit, we have no life force, we have no animation. And without a body, we have no vehicle for spirit and soul to engage with each other. Um, for that's the key thing that's going on, is the relationship of spirit and soul within the vehicle, within the body. So from a practical um, perspective, the alchemist is seeking to work with matter, be it plants, be it minerals, be it metals, um, by identifying the principles within the specific substances mm -hmm. that he or she wishes to work with. And the working with is um, establishing an intimacy with the matter in hand in order to understand how it works and to understand how the alchemist might free the individual principles from each other, take them apart in order to purify them mm -hmm. and put them back together again. I see. Right. And is that separation process um, accompanied by a black, I've heard the terms blackening, whitening, reddening, making something black, white, red, is that all? Yes, these, these colours, and there's also another one, the cauda pavonis, which is um, Latin for the peacock's tail. And that alludes to the um, different colours that the matter in the alembic can go through. And the alembic is? The alembic is the vessel, um, traditionally a glass vessel, within which the matter is digested through heating, through maceration, there are these processes. And the negrido is the blackening, mm -hmm. 
and it's an early stage of the work. And that is where the integrity of the matter is, in a sense, falling apart. So it's being burnt up? It's being burned or it's being digested. There are different, there are different paths and there are different um, routes. Um, I have to say that although people call me an alchemist, and although it is indeed uh, my favorite subject, and um, something I've been exploring for, well, in a practical sense, for over 20 years now, I have not reached the stage where I have committed the matter to the Alembic and observed these um, different processes going through. What I can say is that I've explored um, the potential meanings of these um, processes on a symbolic level, because there's also an understanding within alchemy that absolutely everything is symbolic, which doesn't mean to say that it's somehow, we have this understanding of symbols, that they are something other than the, um, what they relate to. The gold is a symbol of the sun, for example, and the lion is a symbol of gold, is, um, which is a symbol of the sun, as if they are in some way removed. The symbol has the essence, is the essence of the thing we're considering. Um, so there's something fundamental, as it were, about lionness, which relates to the solar, that gold also relates to. So they are, as it were, different um, modes of the same fundamental reality. And how does that work on the psychological plane? Well, on the psychological plane, um, the alchemist is committed to pure identifying um, spirit and soul within him or herself um, and understanding the relationship learning to appreciate how these different modes work within us because they are actually different identities. Mm. They are both conscious. They both have their, um, they both have their modes of being and they have their different agendas in a sense. Mm. They have roles to play. Um, but we all know the conflicts that we can find ourselves experiencing where we can seem to be at loggerheads with ourself. And that's because we find ourselves as divided selves. Mm -hmm. We are divided. And one of the principal aims of the alchemist is to achieve the, the chemical wedding, so-called, the alchemical wedding, within oneself. And that is the reconciliation of the soul and the spirit, the falling in love, where the, this polarized extreme, because where we find ourselves down here, um, where everything is in pairs, where we are all, there's male and female, there's up and down, there's light and dark, we are stuck with these polarities. And what we're trying to achieve is union, trying to achieve a union of these, um, these pairs within ourselves, which are both complementary and yet set in opposition. Mm -hmm. And we are, we're in a 
situation, our mundane situation, is to find that there is an antagonism at play um, between these um, polarized um, pairs, such as the spirit and the soul, where a recognition and appreciation of the roles that they play and what they really are, an honoring of those principles, one to the other, in order that they can literally surrender to each other, mm. fall in love with each other, mm. in order to achieve union through the dissolving of all friction. Mm-hmm. And so can you go back to the, the three elements, the three principles, sulfur, mercury, and then the mercury is the third. Sulfur, mercury, salt. Sulfur, mercury, salt. And so in terms of my attempt to understand how sulfur works in my psyche um, and how it's in opposition to mercury and how they can come together and be integrated within salt of the body, can you give me some angles of entry into an understanding of that? One useful thing that Freud did for us was he established the concept of the ego in a way that we've all been able to recognize and embrace. Mm. We can recognize and see a part of us which has a strong sense of self, which has a strong sense of its own identity, and the pitfalls of the ego, you know, are clearly established amongst us, both conversationally um, and in terms of how we can consider our own identity. And that which is self-motivated, I consider the ego operates as my agent, in a sense, mm-hmm. who's always trying to cut a good deal um, for me. Well, leave my boy alone. He's all right. He's all right, you know. And <laughs> because the ego is um, establishing identity, looking to establish identity, and looking to carve out territory, carve out... Um, carve out a a space for itself in order to interact with the with the world and um, the problem with the ego is its selfishness so establishing what it is within us which is inherently selfish mm-hmm. is a key um, is a key entry in um, this is this relates also to a what we might call a spiritual understanding um, around which religions frame themselves as well. All religions stand in opposition to selfishness. Mm. Um, they all require us to relinquish the demands of the self in order in order to honour that which it goes beyond the individual identity, um, that which actually is our true reality. So in a sense, the ego is a false reality because it's very self, it's very egocentric, egocentric. Mm-hmm. If you put the ego at the center, then willy-nilly one finds oneself in selfish relationship. And the alchemist is interested in relationship per se. And so to relinquish the requirements of the individual doing things for oneself is key 
because one wishes to remove self-motivation from the field of one's operation. Otherwise, there's always a bias. Mm -hmm. And of course, this is a pitfall for alchemists in pursuit of the Philosopher's Stone, for example, particularly if they're interested in um, chrysopoeia, which is the Greek term for gold making. Mm -hmm. Because there are all kinds of um, things that the ego will attach itself to in terms of greed and ambition. Mm. So just tell us a little bit about the Philosopher's Stone. What is the origin of that idea? and Why is it so central to the alchemical operation? Well, that's a very interesting question. Um, and it goes back, the actual idea of the, philosopher, the Philosopher's Stone, the Stone of the Philosophers, um, and the elixir, mm. which is... Um, part of that understanding as the elixir of life. And the very term sulfur and mercury go back to ancient Chinese alchemy. Mm -hmm. Because there's a Chinese, ancient Chinese tradition of alchemy, as there is an ancient um, Indian um, alchemical tradition known as um, Rasayana. And um, the focus is different Western alchemy, of course, is focused on gold. Um, it's focused on the philosopher's stone, the philosopher's stone's ability to transmute base metal into um, incorruptible, perfect gold. So, how does that work? I mean, in terms of you, they're, they're actually looking for a, a real stone that will do it, or is it just a? Well, they call it a stone, which is not a stone. And what is the stone? Um, well, the stone itself, once it is correctly confected, is a material thing. Um, and it is described as of a reddish or deep reddish citrine hue, which is extraordinarily heavy and extraordinarily dense, which appears to be made up of myriad tiny, tiny, tiny crystals. Um, and this stone, once confected, has the ability, literally, to transmute base metals mm -hmm. into gold. And there are myriad accounts through Western history of transmutation um, having been demonstrated. Mm -hmm. And if it were not for our scientific, or should I say scientistic, um, bias, which, because it defies the theory of the elements, mm. because it defies um, scientific understanding. There is no scientific theory, mm. accepted theory, which allows for the possibility of the stone. Were it not for that prejudice, and indeed it is a prejudice, then we would have to accept the um, witness accounts of certain characters in the past of unimpeachable reputation, scientists as well. Um, but leaving that aside, um, the key thing in order to begin the stone is to f un achieve um, an understanding of what the so-called prima materia is. Mm -hmm. And the prima materia is this mysterious substance which alchemists believe is these sort of substance of creation itself. And um, that is always kept a secret. 
It is always referred to in the texts often as a thing which is ubiqu ubiquitous. Um, children play with it in the streets. We tread it into the dust and no one knows what it is. Mm -hmm. And it is a mystery. Mm -hmm. And many people will tell you it's many different things. Um, the idea is that you will know it mm -hmm. when you find it. You mm -hmm. go, ah, there will be this understanding. And you will need to work with this, with this substance. That's in the realm of practical al alchemy. But alchemy always had this practical aspect. I mean, post-Jung, there's a tendency to imagine that um, the alchemical process is entirely spiritual, is entirely internal. But to be fair to the tradition of alchemy, going right back in Western alchemy to Zosimus of Panopolis in Egypt, who's about third century, um, He's working practically with matter in order to achieve this intimacy, this intimate understanding of matter in order to open it up um, to achieve um, in pursuit of the stone. Mm. But in um, ancient China, um, they were looking for immortality more than anything else, the elixir of life. But it's interesting, as alchemy proceeded westwards, on the east, as it appears to have done. Um, by the time it comes to the west, we have um, the term sulfur and mercury um, used as the um, as the duad, the key duad. Um, that's first coined by um, Geber, as he's known in the west, which is um, Jabir ibn Hayyan. Mm -hmm. Of Baghdad. And it is clear because he starts using things like magic squares that have their origin in the East and in China, that somewhere maybe along the Silk Route, um, ideas have been transmitted and coming filtering through to the West. And it just so happens that the elemental substances, sulfur and mercury, when they are joined and a compound is created, um, it creates vermilion. And the color vermilion is the um, color that the philosopher's stone is always said to be. And for the Chinese, this color, this deep, deep blood red, is considered the color of life. So the Chinese flag to this day mm -hmm. is this um, deep vermilion red. And so it's interesting that Jabir should have chosen sulfur and mercury to represent the polarities, which when joined together, create a substance which has something in common with the stone itself. Mm. The impression that we get from just a casual reading of these texts is that um, it's more a question of of an inner spiritual transformation that is outwardly expressed through these chemical, alchemical experiments, but that the spiritual work that one has to do on oneself is very rarely made explicit. Is there a reason why so much of the, the spiritual complement 
to the alchemical process, the inner work. It's always kept secret. Is there a reason why that secrecy has been maintained for all these centuries around alchemy? Well, in terms of the spiritual aspects being um, emphasized, it is typical of alchemical texts to begin with a prayer. They're always framed within a religious context. And I think this goes back to primordial shamanism. If we think of the story of metals, for example, well, gold itself would have been the very first metal we would have come across because gold can be found in its native form, lying on the earth. It's the only metal that you can find in its pure form without having to extract it as an ore. You can find um, native copper. It's rarer, and you tend to find it inside the earth. And there is native silver, um, which grows in a sort of crystalline form. But again, you only find it really within the earth. But gold you find um, along the edge of streams, in the water. We'd have come down to the water's edge and found this glittering substance within the sand and even found little nuggets and we'd have picked it up mm-hmm. and it's got this weightiness to it and it's the color of the sun and it's very, it's malleable. I mean, even between your fingers, if you find a nugget pure as gold, you can start to knead it and it's interesting that there's a need involved in our relationship with gold. actually change the shape? Yeah. You could, you could actually, you could actually, really pure gold, you can actually, you can, you can um, get your fingernail into it. Really? So, yeah, and it can be beaten out incredibly fine, and it never dulls. It never rusts. Of course, we had no concept of rust in those primordial times, that golden age, because we knew no other metal except for um meteoric iron which had fallen from the skies but that of course being iron was dull it just looked like um, a rock but when you pick it up it's got this weightiness to it and what we found is when you pick two of them up you get bang you get this metallic ring Mm -hmm. and gold even though it's got this softness has this beautiful ring to it Mm -hmm. and this ring imagine the first humans to pick up lumps of gold and strike that bell. Mm. That would have been the first time we'd heard this um, metallic resonance. Mm. And you think metal has formed, metal, we make metal bands, we've got our steel bands, we've got our our silver bands. Um, Metal to create music is an extraordinary thing. So striking this um, gold um, and hearing this ring, we would have started exploring up the stream bed to find more of this. And eventually we'd have been going into the earth as the springs come out of the earth. Now for primordial man, going into the mother, into the mother's body would have been a very intimate process. Mm. And there'd have been all kinds of sacred taboos around so the very first metallurgists, and of course they wouldn't have been considered metallurgists, there'd have been no concept of it, would just be seeking out the gold. Pursuing the gold into the earth would have been an immensely 
um, sacred, mm. precious thing with all kinds of considerations ringed around it. But it's gold that led us into the earth. It's gold that led us to discover the other metals. And with our mastery of fire, we were then able to free the other metals from the matrix, the rock matrix of the ores that held them fixed, free them up. And by the time we'd mastered fire to the degree where we could smelt iron, then the Iron Age mm. becomes an inevitability. Mm. And there's a great irony, if I may use that term, <laughs> no pun intended, that gold should have willy-nilly led us to iron. Mm. And the Iron Age, the materialization and the falling away from the sacred mm. and the corruption which has um, come about on every level through the Iron Age, through the Industrial Revolution, in a specifically recent historical context, and iron being the, the metal of Mars, the god of war, the weaponization that immediately started to happen with the discovery of iron, tanks, cannons, all this. We can see that just by looking at our relationship with metals, there's been this unfolding, this degrade. Just what's the historical context here? When did this happen? When was it that iron was smelted? What period? How many? Well, post-Bronze Age. So the Bronze Age comes along about 2000 AD, as we used to call it, 2000 years, 4,000 years ago. Um, 2000 years BC. 2000 years BC, rather. Sorry, BC, before Christ. So about 4,000 years ago, maybe 4,500, is when the Bronze Age starts, and that's when they realize that you can make an alloy from tin and copper, because the first tools um, and metal weapons were um, um, made using copper. So you've got the copper age. Copper is rather soft. It dulls. It's not strong enough to really make plowshares from. But um, the alloy of um, tin and copper um, creates bronze, and that's kick-started um, a new era mm -hmm. in civilization. I'm thinking from a Western mm -hmm. um, perspective because I'm more familiar with the Western historical um, um, story. But in the West, around the um, Mediterranean, littoral and the Levant, the Bronze Age became a big deal, and you've got these big city-states, mm -hmm. and um, it was after the from about the time, the collapse of the Bronze Age in the West, there was this, um, what they call the late Bronze Age collapse, where a perfect storm of different factors led to the collapse of Western civilization. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a dark age where all these city-states had collapsed. There was famine, there was war, there was pestilence, um, there were Islands like um, Santorini um, literally being swallowed up by the sea in earthquakes, volcanoes creating um, sort of, as it were, a nuclear winter, creating winter so the sun couldn't get through. So then you have famines and then you have everybody warring. So there was a complete collapse, but then 
the smelting of iron came out of the Dark Ages following the Bronze Age collapse. Mm. And that's when modern civilization really started to come through mm. in the West. Thank you, Guy. That's, that's very interesting. One of the images that um, I've picked up through my very limited reading of these texts is the idea of uh, the soul being like lead at the beginning of the alchemical process and that the aim is to transform the soul into gold. So there's a spiritual transformation that is being aimed at which outwardly takes the form of these alchemical processes and one is perhaps looking to transform, transmute lead into gold physically but isn't it rather the metaphysical dimension that is most important for the alchemist to transform his or her own soul from being heavy, dark, like lead, into being light and glorious, like gold? Yes, incorruptible, like gold. Well, this is the key thing. What's the motivation? Why are you pursuing alchemy? Are you doing it in order to make gold so you've got something of value that you can spend so you become rich? Well, traditionally in the West, if you're doing that, you're a puffer. And a puffer is somebody who's always at the bellows or puffed up with his um, with sophistry, um, making themselves self-important by talking as if they know all about it and they know all about this arcane art. Actually... The entry point for true alchemy is complete crisis. Mm -hmm. It's a complete crisis of the individual recognizing our corruptibility on the one hand, our mortality on the, on the other hand, and our complete helplessness and our nescience, our lack of knowledge, our lack of understanding, this helplessness and determining to re-establish that connection with the divine, that inner corruptibility, um, that solar golden light, which is um, something that can be absolutely counted upon. Um, so that process then begins. The great thing about working with substances is that they, um, these substances can, um, they can, they give us a lead in. We can dis discover ourselves in the outside. On the one hand, the world is a terrible distraction that makes us, wants to convince us that everything out there is the point and can lead us away from ourselves, and there's all this fascination. But in fact, we work with nature as opposed to the world and get right down to the nitty-gritty to really find out what the matter is. What is the matter? Mm -hmm. I don't feel comfortable. I am not at ease with myself. I'm in this crisis because I know that I'm... I'm somehow doomed to die, and I don't know if I, if I am going to be immortal, then clearly there's some work that needs to be done. So what's the matter? What is it? What is it? What is it? And you can find it or something which is the correlation of your need, your um, situation, manifested 
in matter. So there is a mirror there. It's like a magical mirror to work with um, because one can start to open oneself up and start to see exactly what it is with, uh, that one is working with. And we have these wonderful texts from these masters going back hundreds, even thousands of years where these people, although they're speaking in riddles, once you start to become familiar with some of the symbols and some of the processes that they're talking about, you can recognize these as internal processes, as, um, as internal um, situations and internal principles that we're working with. Mm -hmm. Because although life is an intensely personal business, it's also universal. We're all in the same boat. We're all made of the same matter. We are all from the same source. And the leadenness of the soul is the fact that we are, as it were, fallen. We have been involved in this descent into matter, the most material, heavy mode of being. And we wish to give the soul back its lightness, its eternal lightness of being. So it's a question of learning how to free the shackles and actually purify the soul um, with spirit playing along because spirit is what gives us our motivation. It is this life force. It is that thing which is seeking identity but can take us deeper inside ourselves to find an identity which is not about the selfish self the little self, the little I, uh, but the capital I, the one. Mm -hmm. So it's seeking the one within ourselves, which is eternal, which is ultimate, it is absolute. So willy-nilly, the alchemist is involved in a process of self-purification and self-transformation in order to save ourselves, mm. Mm. in order to redeem ourselves. Um, so is this possibly what um, Socrates meant when he said that the true philosopher is training for death? Oh yes. That at the point of death, the soul will be light and ascend to the paradisal regions rather than be heavy and descend to the infernal Region. Well, indeed, and there's um, there's the Egyptian understanding of that because Western alchemy definitely comes through um, an Egyptian mode for sure, and that's that's um, that's as far back as we can go into Western alchemy. We go back to Egypt, and there is um, this business of Mart, the god of death, and there is the there is the dead person, the um, the bar, the soul of the dead person, is being weighed on the mm. on the scales by um, one of the gods, by indeed by Thoth, I believe. And we're told that if one's soul weighs as much as a feather, it will tip the scales down, and the soul will fall back into matter, mm -hmm. will fall back into creation, will fall back into 
this endless wheel mm. of birth and rebirth, birth and rebirth, which in itself is a purification process. Because at the point at which we reach the, um, the bottom, where the path of return starts, is where the soul goes, I need to know. Okay, I've got to sort this out. I've got to sort out this situation because I want to escape this endless run. One might not articulate it. There is, a, there is a certain articulation of the heart which isn't expressed necessarily in meaning because there's a sense in which the soul does not speak in words. The, soul's, the soul feels where the soul expresses itself in anguish and in pain. And at that point we realize we really need to do something. Mm -hmm. And alchemy is a way to address the matter directly. And thanks to the masters who've gone before, I'll find a framework to recognize and understand what all these processes are that we go through once this crisis has been initiated. Mm -hmm. And acknowledged as such. A acknowledged as such. Mm -hmm. One of, the, one of the masters says, when the work begins, vinegar rains with tears. Right. It's a dissolution. Dissolution is one of the alchemical processes. The negrido is this complete blackening. Mm -hmm. It is a death. It's a small death. And what's more, these, all these different processes, um, dissolution, fermentation, putrefaction, sublimation, cohabation, all these different processes can be repeated over and over again, are repeated over and over again. One might think one's reached that point of, finally, I'm through it, and then suddenly you find you're back in it and you're being put through the ring again. So this, this, these pure processes of purification can go on and on and on. And so enormous patience mm -hmm. and enormous commitment um, and capacity for suffering mm. are acquired mm. in order to temper the soul to perfection. Well, thank you very much. That's a lovely overview of these essential principles. And we're going to go exploring some of the applications of the alchemical principles to the Green Knight narrative and to the Arthurian story generally. But thank you very, very much. Not at all, mate. Absolutely. Absolutely. Pleasure, thank you.